Chapter Six, Part Two of Two Years in Oregon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. Chapter Six, Part Two. Did you ever hear of flounder spearing by torchlight? I have tried it, and I do not propose to try it again. Equina Bay abounds in flounders, a flat fish resembling the turbot more than the flounder, red-spotted like the place, and weighing from one pound up to five or six. After nightfall, when the evening tide has just turned to come in, and the sandy channels and banks are all but bare, Away from the main deep-water channels of the bay you may see tiny specks of distant lights moving on the black water. These are the Indian canoes. Take a skiff from the beach by the hotel at Newport and row out to sea. Here are two or three lights near together under Hedden's Point, on the south shore. Row on till the lights in the hotel are blended into one, and the dark outlines against the sky of the overhanging cliffs are lost to sight. No sound reaches you in the darkness but the recurring rattle of the skulls in the rowlocks and the soft lapping of the tide. The lights you are seeking grow brighter, and you distinguish the glare of the fire and the moving dim form of the fisherman. The canoe, some sixteen feet long, is bolted roughly across midships, and on a thin layer of sand and wood ashes burns a pine-knot fire. The Indian stands in the bows, his back to the fire. As you look, he poles himself along by driving the handle of his long spear into the sand underlying the shallow channel. His fire burns dim for a moment, and he turns, and with the same spear handle he trims it, then stooping, throws on it a fresh lump of resinous pine. The fire dulls for an instant, then flares with a bright light, and thick puffs of smoke rises into the air, on which the glare falls strongly. The short, athletic form of the Indian, and his swarthy, flattened features, glittering eyes, and bushy hair, stand out for a moment in strong relief. He turns, and again looks keenly into the black water. In a moment he strikes, the spear making the water splash as it dips swiftly in. Yes, he has it, and the frail boat quivers as he balances it ere he lifts out his struggling prey, and with a deft quick motion throws the fish off, flapping and bouncing on a heap of victims in the stern of the canoe. Without a smile or word, or an instant's respite, he turns again and resumes his keen watch moving to the shallower waters as the tide makes. I had a friend who was an enthusiast in the sport, and he beguiled me to join him. About eight we started, and at about two in the morning we returned. Warm as the weather was, I was chilled to the bone, and the worst of it was, I had not succeeded in striking one single fish. My friend armed me with a long spear and a lantern, and deposited me in the stern of the boat. Similarly provided, he knelt in the bow and pushed the skiff along from bank to bank of sand and mud. My light did not burn brightly enough to show more than the dimmest outlines of the fish, 
just off the sandy bottom of the bay. Here scuttled an old crab, scared by the novel light, and hurrying for shelter crab-fashion to the nearest bunch of weeds. There was a school of tiny fish, their silver sides glancing as the ray reached them, and there again a quick white flash betrayed the sea-perch, not waiting to be spoken to. Every now and then my friend darted his long spear at what he said with the flounders, but I could see nothing with my untrained eyes but a grey cloud and a gentle stirring of the sand. He did get one fish at last, and I, being too proud to say how bored and tired I was, waited sleepily for the rising tide to drive us home. How glad was I when he announced that the water was now too deep to see distinctly, and how thankfully I stumbled up the slimy steps by the little wharf and in to bed. Flounder fishing in the daytime is good sport. Find out the nearest camp of Indians there on the beach, crowded under a shelter of sea-worn planks, a few fur boughs and a tattered blanket. The smell of tainted fish pollutes the air, and a heap of flounders, each with the triangular spear-mark, attests to the skill of last night's fishermen. "'Any fish, muck-a-muck?' say you, blandly, without turning her head or raising herself from her crouching posture by the old black kettle, stewing on a tiny fire of sticks in the centre of the hut, the old crone grunts out, "'Hello. None. Want to bit?' you say, nowise discouraged.' Money has magic power nowadays, and she rises slowly and shuffles past you to where a rag or two are drying in the sun on a stranded log. From under the clothes she brings out a dirty basket of home make, and in it is a heap of greenish struggling prawns. She turns out two or three handfuls into the meat tin you have providently brought, holds out her skinny hand for the little silver pieces and buries herself in a shanty without another word. Fit out your fishing lines and come aboard. The tide has turned and the wind blows freshly across the bay. The surf keeps up its continuous roar on the rocky reefs outside. On the sandbank in front of you sits a row of white and grey gulls preening themselves in the morning sun. A couple of ospreys are sailing overhead in long, graceful, hardly moving sweeps, and the way out by the north head hangs an eagle in the air, watching the ospreys, that he may cheat them of the fish he looks to see them catch. Set the sail and let her go free, and away rushes the little boat, tired of bobbing at moorings by the pier, away across the bay to where the south beach sinks in gentle sandy slope. Take care of that waving weed, or we shall be on the edge of the bank. Here we are, and down goes the kedge in six feet of water, close but just clear of that same edge. Now for the bait. Tie it on tightly with that white cotton, or the flounders will suck it off so fast that you will have nothing else to do but keep replacing it. Keep your sinkers just off the bottom and a light hand on the line. A gentle wiggle, a twitch, and you have him. Haul him up steadily. Up he comes a four-pounder, tossing and flopping in the bottom of the boat. Here comes a great crab, holding on to the bait grimly, and suffering you to catch him by one of his lower legs and toss him in. 
Now for the sea perch, what a splendid colour! Bands of bright scarlet scales interlaced with silver. But what is this? A stream of water flows from the fish's mouth, and in it comes out five or six little ones, the image of their parent. I wonder if it is true, and I think it is, that the little ones take refuge inside their parent in any time of need. The fishermen on this coast call this the squawfish, from this sheltering maternal instinct. But we have been here long enough. The water is too deep. The fish have gone off to feed. And we shall have to beat back, lucky if we do in two hours, the distance we ran in half an hour on our way. The tide has run nearly out this evening. A good chance for some rock oysters. Get your axe and come along. Where? Along the coast towards foul weather, where we shall find those long reefs almost bare. We climb over the big reef on the north head of the harbour, under the lighthouse hill, and widened in and out on the hard sand along the rough rocks, all crusted over their sides with tiny barnacles. There is little kelp or seaweed here. The surf beats too powerfully in this recess, away from the shelter of the great outer reef. See that group of Indian women and children away out there, bare-legged, digging with their axes in the rock. They are after rock oysters, too. Now is our chance. Jump on to that rock before the next wave comes in, and climb on to the reef beyond it, and get out to low-water mark. Here we are. Do you see that crevice? Chip in and wrench the pieces off. The rock is soft enough sandstone to cut with that blunt old axe. Here is the spoil. Soft mollusks, are they not? And not pretty to look at. But wait for the soup and the dinner tomorrow before you pronounce on them. And we dig, and then venture farther out and farther till the turn of the water warns us to get back. The evening is closing in. The sun has set, leaving a hot red glow, where his copper disk has just sunk beyond the Pacific horizon, and the eyes wander out from the infant waves, at foot just tinged with red, and reflecting the light as they move up in turn to catch it, to the blue and still darker blue water beyond, out to the sharp indigo line where sky and water meet. No land between us and the eastern world. The mind can hardly grasp the idea of the vast stretch of sea across which this new world reaches forth to join hands with old China and Japan. Before we go to bed, step for a moment into the quaint general store, all but adjoining the hotel. What a medley! Flour and axes, bacon and needles and thread, fishing lines and bullock hides, writing paper and beaver traps, milk pails and castor oil, tobacco in plenty and skins, and a smell compounded of all these and more, but chiefly the product of that batch of skins hanging from that big nail in front of you and lying piled on the bench by your side. Take them down and turn them over. Bush won't mind, and we shake hands with the proprietor, coming from the darkness at the back. He has borne an honourable limp ever since the war, 
and is never yet quite recovered from illness and wounds. He swears by Newport is the best and healthiest and most promising place in the world. Say, he whispers in our ear, got a sea otter skin to-day? Where did you get it, Bush? And who from? And how much did you have to pay for it? Got it from the Indians, says he. They shot it away up by Salmon River, beyond foul weather, and had to give more dollars for it than I care to say. Where did they get it? Where they always do, way out in the kelp among the surf. Don't they ever come to land? No, he answers. They live and sleep and breed out in the kelp. But if you want to know all about them, why don't you ask Charlie here? He has been trading this summer and last winter and spring up by Gray's Inlet in Washington Territory, where they are plenty. So saying, he calls up the captain of the steam schooner lying at her moorings by the quay. From this man and from hunters and Indians all along the coast, I have gathered many a tale of the habits of the sea otter and of the fate of those that have been killed, for the rarity of the beast and the beauty and value of its skin interests these men, both from their hunter's instinct and from the mere money business of it. I know also that scientific naturalists desire all the facts they can get, that such facts may be placed on record before this connecting link between the seals and the otters perishes from the earth. I believe that the sea otter, and Hydra marina, is only met with on this north Pacific coast, along which it is gradually being driven northward by constant hunting. Thirty years ago they were common along the Oregon sea line. Now the killing of a single specimen is noted in the newspapers, and hardly more than one in a year is generally met along the coast. They inhabit the belt of tangle and kelp, which is found a few hundred yards from the beach, beyond the shoreline of sand or rock. They are never seen ashore, or even on isolated rocks. When the sea is warm and still, they live much on the surface, playing in the weed, sometimes supporting their four feet on the thickest part of the wavy mass, they raise their heads and shoulders above the weeds, and gaze around. Parents and children live together in the weed. I have not heard of more than two young ones being seen in the family group. The skeleton is about four feet long. The forepaws are short, strong, and webbed, almost in the same proportions as a mole's. The hinder extremities are flappers, like the seal's. The hide is twice the size of the common otters, the fur the most beautiful, soft, thick, and glossy in the world, dark brown outside and almost yellow beneath like the seals. They are sometimes shot from a steam schooner, like my friends, lying too at a safe distance, but much more commonly from the shore. Along the coast of Gray's Inlet several hunters make a regular business of it, Quite high watch-towers of timber are built just above the high-water mark, and on these the hunters climb with his long-range rifle and watches. He provides a man on horseback to follow any otter he may be fortunate enough to kill up or down the coast, and take possession of it when thrown up on the beach by the tide. These men seem to prefer the sharp rifle for accuracy of long-range fire. That they are no mean proficients may be judged when I mention that one hunter killed upwards of sixty last year. The skins, or most of them, my friend the captain bought at prices varying with size and condition from fifty to one hundred dollars each.
I am told that about August the young ones are seen in company with their parents, but that the otters may be met with at almost any time in the year when the sea is calm enough for them to be marked among the tangle. The common otter, Lutra californica, abounds in the tidal portions of the rivers along this coast. Two Indians, whom I know, shot six in an hour or two among the rocks bordering a little cove some eight miles north of the Uquina, into which a little river empties itself. The skins are not quite so large as those of the English otter, but the fur is valuable. The mink, Putorus vision, resembles the polecat, but is nearly twice as large. With nearly black fur, it frequents the borders of the streams, and takes to the water with the greatest readiness. We have rabbits in Oregon, Lepus Washingtoni, not much more than half the size of the common rabbit of Europe, but similar in habits and places of residence. It is on these that the mink chiefly preys. I was walking my horse along a quiet stretch of sandy road, between thick bushes, returning from the equina one day in summer, when a rabbit darted out before my horse and down the road for a hundred yards as hard as he could go then into the bushes, then back on to the road, and up the other side, close to me, evidently in the greatest fear. I stopped to see. Presently a mink came out where poor Bunny first appeared, nose to the ground and hunting like a ferret. He followed the rabbit's track step by step down the road, into the bushes, back again close to me, then into the brush, and then out came the poor rabbit again, the heart gone out of him, stopping for an instant, then going on a few steps, stopping again, and at last, trembling, he bunched himself into his smallest compass in the middle of the road, and there awaited his fate. Not losing one twist or turn, patience, fierce, inexorable, the enemy followed, not rising his nose from the trail till he was almost on his prey. Then a quick bound, the rabbit was squeezed by the head, almost without a struggle, and dragged nearly unresisting into the bushes, down toward the river's edge. While I passed on, musing on the points of resemblance between cousins on opposite sides of the world. Fortunately, these rabbits are very scarce. They are hardly seen in the valley. They live solely in the woods, never in or about the cultivated ground. End of chapter 6, part 2